0: The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 10, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. I want you to think about who would be the top rung of all the different birds in the bird population. Like of all the birds, I want you to think, what's the most well-respected, what would be the top? I mean, there's a couple of them. I mean, it could be like a falcon, maybe a hawk, the condor, okay? Like it's got one of the biggest flying birds, maybe the biggest flying bird, okay? But at the, the top rung, okay, it has to be, I think, the eagle, I mean it's actually the symbol of our nation. I mean it's a symbol of being stately. Okay, they're known for their precision, their eyesight. It's like they're actually like an icon of like excellence. There's awards you can you can get that are named after the eagle. There, there are fighter jets named after the eagle. Okay, it's like there's so many high school mascots that are the eagles. Probably one of the most popular mascots there is in our country. The eagle has to be like the top rung. And so I was thinking, okay, on the other extreme, what's like the low end of all the birds? Okay, a pigeon. There's not very many people that are like passionate about pigeons. Okay, the Muscovy duck is definitely down there. It's one of the dumbest creatures in the entire animal kingdom. Not pretty. The bottom rung, I think, it has to be the buzzard. The vulture. I mean, they're the worst. Okay? The the buzzard, they're just... It's just in the same way the eagle is like a symbol of like power and and, uh, nobility even and excellence. Like the buzzard is like a symbol of death and darkness and blackness. I mean, vultures are the worst. Okay, we say... I want you to soar like the eagle. But we say, there are vultures circling me. (laughs) Completely different thing. Okay, those are like poles. In fact, the interesting thing is when you think of an eagle soaring and a buzzard circling, if you're not like a birder, you probably can't tell the difference between the two. They actually look very similar in their flight pattern. You have to like be educated to know the difference. And here's what's interesting: we see the eagle and the buzzard as like the poles. Okay, a lot of mascots, the eagles. Not a lot of mascots, the buzzard. But the interesting thing, scientifically, eagles and buzzards on the bird family tree are right next to each other. In fact, they're in the same family. In fact, um, in the eagle and hawk category, the next closest bird is the buzzard. Okay, Th- think of it like this. One zoologist said the eagle is basically a buzzard with a better PR department. <laughs> All right, they're very similar. They, uh, as much as we want to always think of like an eagle, it's like flying down and plucking a, a fish out of the water. They'll eat off of dead things. They can be scavengers, in fact they so they're more similar than, than we want to think they're in the same family, they're cousins. There's a picture in uh, that the Orlando S- Sentinel posted of, of th- that was taken in Orlando. Check out this picture. that's at the Orlando dump, and all those eagles and buzzards are like, what? we're family I don't know what the big difference is. They're all just sitting there together. OK We see these two birds as like the poles that could not be farther apart, and the reality is that's kind of a false distinction. They're right next to each other. They're actually very similar. So there's two concepts that we often say are like poles. We see them as like enemies, as like separate as we've got to pick one or the other, and we see them as very far apart, but they actually belong together. They're they're family. They're, They're right next to each other. And these are the concepts of love and truth. You say, all right, wait a minute, love and truth. Okay, how are these things like poles? I mean, I appreciate love and I appreciate truth, but probably you will lean, when push comes to shove, to love or to truth. So some of you, if you come to a difficult situation, then you'll say, "Okay, I- I'm, I'm here." But uh, man, the most important thing is-, is love. Ultimately, love makes the world go round. Love is all you need, as they say. Okay, love is is that's the most important thing. I, I don't want to ever hurt anybody. I want to love on people. I, I don't want to break the relationship. I, I want to foster that relationship. Love is what this world is missing. And so sometimes what if you lean into that love category, sometimes you'll maybe reinterpret what you believe or reinterpret reality or you'll reinterpret some things in, in the name of love. I keep saying like song titles. I can't help it. I'm up here, okay? You keep, you, in the, in, in the, for the sake of love, I'm trying to find the phrase here. For the sake of love, you, you might like, really what you may do is wear down truth a little bit, okay? The other side, some will say, okay, but truth is truth. The world can't operate without truth. I, I, I appreciate love and I try to be loving, but when it comes down to it, I'm gonna side with truth, and so we might say something like this: like I, I, I know someone's feelings are involved, but there's also facts involved too. And so we feel like as if there's this dichotomy, or you know, I know that um, I, I'm dealing with this relationship. Or I'm gonna side with the relationship, and I'm gonna augment my reality a little bit. And it's like as if reality and relationship are combating each other, or if it's like, okay, there's acceptance over here, but then there's accuracy over here, and there's like this dichotomy that we see, and in the end we feel like in so many of our relationships and our conversations, we feel forced to pick one pole or the other, but what we find in Scripture, both love and truth, is in Scripture. They actually go together. They're not poles. And this is most beautifully demonstrated in this encounter that Jesus has. It's in John chapter 4. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, if you'd open with me to John chapter 4, we're going to take a look at this story. It is absolutely beautiful. John chapter 4, verse 1. We're going to see this encounter that Jesus has. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Okay, here's the context for this encounter that's just about to happen. I want to just set it up by explaining what's happened. Jesus has left Judea, that's where Jerusalem is, and he's traveling north to Galilee. Galilee is where his hometown Nazareth is, Galilee is where his kind of ministry headquarters, Capernaum, of course the Sea of Galilee, Uh, so much of the stories about Jesus happens up north in Galilee. So Jesus is traveling north from Jerusalem, from Judea, up to Galilee, and he has to pass through this region called Samaria. Now it says that he had to pass through, and it's a little bit of a loaded language, because Jews and Samaritans, there was a lot of tension between Jews and Samaritans. How much tension? It was so much that later in that first century, a couple decades after Jesus, there was, it was violent fighting between Jews and Samaritans and the Romans had to send in soldiers to keep the peace between the two. It was tension. The tension was historic. It was racial. It was religious. It was theological. I mean, it was the full gamut of tension. It was historical and racial because the Samaritans saw themselves as the descendants of Israel and the Jewish people saw themselves as descended from from Judah, the, one of the tribes of Israel, and they did not see the Samaritans as truly the descendants They thought that that they were not descended from Israel, that they had mixed their religion in with other things and watered it down. It was racial and historical. It was also their beliefs differed. There's a belief difference that caused a huge tension. The Samaritans had their own temple on their own mountain in Samaria and they said this is the legitimate temple of God. The Jews had their own temple in Jerusalem on a mountain and said, no, this temple on this mountain is the correct place to worship God. And there was constant tension. So when it says that Jesus had to travel through Samaria, they're saying Jesus did what ultra-pious, very strict Jewish rabbis would not do. The ultra-strict conservative would, uh, rabbi would have gone North, gone over the Jordan River and crossed around so as to not even go through Samaria to get all the way up to Galilee. They would take the long route. But Jesus goes straight through. Now, he finds himself at a well. He's wearied from his long journey. He stops at this well, and he says, it says it's at the sixth hour or about the sixth hour. That's around noon. That's a significant detail for this story. Let's see what happens. Let's keep going. Verse 7. All right, the the encounter goes on, and we're going to get to that in a second. But already what's happened here is absolutely remarkable, and we're going to break this apart. Jesus stops at this well. He's sitting there, alone, middle of the day. A woman shows up, alone, with a jar to, to gather water. And Jesus speaks to her, and she's probably expecting just kind of quietly to just not even make eye contact, draw the water, and he says, may I have a drink of water? She is shocked. I bet she's speechless for a second, blinks a couple times, and says, I cannot even believe that you are talking to me. We're going to talk about that in a second. I can't even believe that you're speaking to me. And she says, and he says, well, if you knew, then you'd ask me for living water. And she says, you you don't even have anything to draw with where are you getting this living water and he says specifically this the water that i give wells up inside the soul permanently satisfying thirst and what she says is well i would love to get some of that water then i don't have to then i don't have to ever get thirsty again and i don't have to keep coming back to this well now what's happened here jesus has obliterated about four at least four different social norms What do you mean by social norms? We're not talking laws. Remember, Jesus is God in the flesh. God has not broken his own laws. He's done nothing immoral, but he has broken social norms. What's a social norm? A social norm is what is commonly expected and comfortable within a culture or a society. So for example, I just want to take a quick poll. Um, Just by, by show of hands, South Florida is very transient, so by show of hands, If you have lived in Florida, in South Florida, for less than 10 years, just raise your hand. I want to see here. Okay. Good number of us. Okay. Very transient. People moving in and out of of Florida all the time. If you are not from South Florida, when you come to West Pines and you say hi to people, there may be a practice that makes you uncomfortable that South Floridians do. You come and you say hi to someone and they introduce you to, to their friend or their cousin that you've never met and the cousin who's now met a stranger will hug you and kiss you on the cheek. And that's completely normal in South Florida. But for some of you who are like, look, I, I'm comfortable like 10 feet away with a wave. Any closer than that, I'm uncomfortable. Like if it's, unless it's like, like my, my own mother, then I'll give a handshake. Okay, But beyond that, I'm uncomfortable. Okay, those are social norms. They're not right or wrong. They're just social norms. Jesus breaks, obliterates about four different social norms, but get this it's not just something social, they're religious social norms. It's religious convention that he's breaking, it's religious tradition that he's breaking. And it's all right there in what the woman says, her first words, I can't believe that you, a Jew, are talking to me, asking me to draw you water, a woman from Samaria. Let's break this out. First of all, John makes it very explicit. Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. He wants to make sure you don't miss that. This is completely breaking this norm. It's not like the ultra-pious would not even step foot into Samaritan territory, but those who did, they're having no dealings. Like, they're not talking about the weather. They're, They're not buying stuff from them. They're passing right through. That was the expectation. She probably came up, her expectation was probably to see this Jewish man. She was probably rolled her eyes and expected to awkwardly in silence draw water and get out of there as soon as she could. But this Jewish person breaks through that barrier and starts talking to the Samaritan person. That's the first thing. Second thing, despite all of the belief differences, he's talking to her and then he asks her for water. That is really breaking a religious norm of that day. Because in their minds, their kosher dietary laws, you would never eat with a Gentile, who the Jews would have considered Samaritans Gentiles. You'd never eat with them, and you certainly would not use their plates, their bowls, their utensils, because that was used to touch unkosher food. So by using the cup or the jar or the plate of a Samaritan, you would be making yourself unclean. Jesus asks her for a drink. She says, you have no jar, which means that Jesus is going to use her jar, her ladle, her cup, whatever utensil she has. She can't believe. He's not just They're not talking about the weather. He's asking for a drink. That is breaking that social religious norm. But that's not the biggest one. She says, you're ta- not just talking to a Samaritan. You're talking to a woman of Samaria, the greatest social norm that he breaks is that he's talking to a woman in public. See, what the rabbis taught at that time, this is not what the Old Testament says, this is what the rabbis commonly taught. They taught that it was inappropriate for a man to talk to a woman in public. Inappropriate, scandalous. Any woman, Your mother, your aunt, your sister, your wife, any woman, inappropriate and scandalous. She can't believe this man is talking to this woman. Okay, that would have been seen as inappropriate, but that's not the fourth one. The fourth one is what adds a lot of tension into this story. It specifically gives us the detail that it's noon, A woman is coming to the well alone at noon to draw water. Okay, in that culture, and this is still true of many cultures around the world, women go to draw water, they go in groups for safety. And they go in the morning when it's cooler and in the evening when it's cooler, especially in the morning because it sets their family up to have water for the rest of the day. There's no running water in their house. So they would go in the morning and in groups. This woman comes alone and at the hottest part of the day. This is revealing something about this woman. She's been ostracized. She's seen as an outcast. Now, why? We learn through this rest of this story why she's seen as an outsider. She's known for her promiscuous and loose living. So, I want to paint this picture for you. Jesus, let's just set the the Samaritan part aside for a second. Jesus is talking to a woman alone who has a notorious reputation. This looks really bad. I'm not saying this to push the text. I want the the text to speak in everything that it's trying to say. John is very explicit. He does not want you to miss what Jesus is doing. Here's what he says. We're going to read this verse in a little bit, but I want to touch on it now. Jump down to verse 27. Here's what John says. Just, this is at the end of their whole dialogue, Jesus with this woman from Samaria. It says, Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Do you see what's happening? John, who's writing the story, who is one of the disciples, who is one of them that had this thought in his head, is saying, When we all got back, we're like dude, what are you doing? Specifically, I mean, this makes me a little uncomfortable to see Jesus in this moment. It should probably make you a little uncomfortable if we're reading this text sensitively enough. They're saying, what are you seeking? Are you propositioning this woman? Jesus is, I mean, he's in a a moment that looks really bad. Why would he do this? Why would he break these social norms, these religious conventions? Why would he do that? Why would he put himself in a position where he could be so misunderstood? Why would he risk the very obvious perception from Jews and Samaritans alike? I mean, even the Samaritan woman's a little uncomfortable going into this conversation. Why would he risk all of that? Remember who he is. He's God in the flesh, and he's looking at this woman. He's willing to to break these social norms. He's willing to put himself and potentially risk being misunderstood. He's willing to do that because she's his creation. He was there when she was knit together in her mother's womb, when she was invented. He loves her. This is his daughter. He doesn't see her and say, oh, Samaritan, their belief systems completely off. I'm so offended. He doesn't say, oh, well, she's made a lot of bad decisions in her life. And and she's still making them. I'm not even going to talk to her. He doesn't turn his nose. He's not disgusted. He's not offended at her sin that really has nothing to do with him. No, you see he's going to her. He's pushing through barriers, pushing through obstacles, going to the unexpected because he loves her. Now, she says, last we left this conversation, he says, there's a living water that I can provide that wells up in your soul, satisfying your soul deeply so you never thirst again. And she says, okay, I'm interested. I would love to never be thirsty again, and I would love to not have to keep coming back to this well. Now, what does Jesus say next? This conversation gets real interesting. Look at this, verse 16. Jesus said to her, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. You've got to see how this conversation plays out because this is so true to humanity. He takes the conversation kind of a weird turn. She says, how can I get this living water? He says, well, go call your husband and we'll talk about it. And she kind of says flatly, I think kind of dismissing, trying to just move the conversation along, oh, I have no husband. And Jesus is not going to let it go, and he, he's pushing into this gently and lovingly. He says, I, I know, you're, you're right, you don't have a husband, but you have had five husbands, and the one that you're currently living with isn't your husband. But you're true, what you're saying is true, you don't have a husband. Now what does she do next? Does she break down in tears? It was like the dam broke and she rests her head on his shoulder and she just pours out what a good listener Jesus is and just kind of pours out all her sorrows. No, she says, oh, uh, well, I see that you're a prophet and let's talk about the mountain thing. So, you know, here are Wish Samaritans. We see this mountain and you see that mountain. And, and But which is the real mountain? What is she trying to do? She's deflecting, isn't she? She's not just deflecting. She's picking the hot-button issue of the day to get distracted on. She picks something that she believes he'll bite on because he's a Jewish rabbi or prophet or whatever he is. He'll probably bite on this and he'll want to debate. He he probably has all this ammunition that he's going to unload and it'd be better to get into this this kind of punching it out kind of debate over here so we can get off this personal stuff that he talks about. What does Jesus? Isn't that so true to life? What does Jesus do? He speaks truth to her again. He's speaking truth to her gently, but he brings, in speaking truth, he brings it back to the main truth that she needs. She says, yes, he says there's yes. There's two mountains, but here's the biggest thing you need to know. The day is coming and it's here now when either mountain doesn't matter. What matters is worshiping in spirit and truth, and he brings her to the point of realizing, uh, talking about the Messiah, and he, and he reveals himself to her as the Messiah. Now, what is he doing? What, what's, why does he turn the conversation? She asks, how do I get this living water because I, I, I don't want to be thirsty anymore and I don't want to keep coming back to this well? And then he starts talking about her love life. Like, what's with that turn? Is he picking on her? Is he, is he being judgmental, condemning? Is he just kind of being the sin police in her life? No, that's not what he's doing at all. In fact, he's very gentle. He's not condemning at all. He's speaking, but he is speaking truth into her life. What is he doing? He's trying to explain to her the spiritual living water that will satisfy her soul. But first he needs to expose where her soul is thirsty. He needs to expose to her the well that she keeps going to to try and satisfy her thirst, but obviously keeps leaving her thirsty. So he goes right because he's Jesus, because he's the Messiah, because he's God in the flesh. He can go right to the soul. And he talks about, you keep going. He says, you want this this water that will satisfy your soul. Here's and so gently, he says, this is what your soul keeps going to. It keeps going to relationship after relationship after relationship after relationship. You don't want to keep going back to a well that will leave you thirsty? Don't keep going back to those relationships. Maybe she's got this pit of loneliness and she keeps trying to satisfy it with these romantic relationships. Maybe deep down she's looking for value, she's looking for worth and she keeps going back to these relationships to try and find that significance and find someone who believes in her. She keeps going back to these relationships and Jesus exposes that. She deflects and he brings it back to the Messiah. He's trying to say this is is the well you need to leave behind. You need to come to the Messiah. Now watch how this story wraps up. Verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. The entire town gets evangelized because of this woman's testimony. But I want you to see one last detail in there. As I'm studying this passage, actually Pastor Justin pointed this detail out. And I thought it was so powerful. Did you notice that John takes time to tell you that she leaves the water jar behind? I mean, who cares? Like, Why, why do we need that detail? Think of the symbolism. She's just said to him, I wish I could find that well that waters my soul so I don't have to keep coming back to these wells that leave me thirsty. She encounters Jesus and she can leave her water jar behind. She no longer needs to go back to those wells. She can now find the Messiah who's, who brings this, this Satisfying well up into her soul. Do you see what's happening in this passage? It's this unbelievable love and truth. I mean, look at all that Jesus does, all that that he risks to show her love. I mean, he sees her, he doesn't turn his nose up at her, he says, This woman's thirsty. He's not standing back all offended by her, by her and how she lives. She's not all offended by her belief system or, or even kind of her pushback and her attack. Like, why are you talking to me? He's not offended by that. He breaks through those barriers and he's just he cares. Why? He's, she's his daughter. He has a broken heart. He's just filled with compassion for a woman that's life is thirsty and she keeps going to these broken wells that are not satisfying her. He's moved with love pushes through those barriers, pushes through those obstacles so that he can show her he's the Messiah. But in the process, does he wear down truth? Never. He gently speaks truth to her. But does he also follow every little rabbit trail to correct her on everything? He speaks the the truth because truth is prioritized. He's trying to get her to the truth truth that she needs to know first and foremost. She needs to know the Messiah, and he keeps bringing her back to that truth, that she needs the Messiah. See, what you have here is love and truth, and here's what, they're together, they belong together. See, the problem is so often we see love as a pole and truth as a pole. So we have an uncomfortable situation with a friend and we have to decide, okay, am I going to love on them or am I going to speak truth to them? That's a false dichotomy. They belong together. They're family. They always belong together. In fact, I want you to see love and truth as like a married couple. A married couple have been married for millennia. They love each other. They support each other. And within this marriage of love and truth, here is how love and truth, here's how they operate within their marriage, okay? It's like this. Love always defers to truth, but truth won't go anywhere without love. That's how that marriage works. Love will always defer to truth, but truth will not go anywhere. Always have to have love by its side. Love always lets truth have its moment, but truth, when it has its moment, will never go without love right there by its side. So like, here's, what, here's what I mean. Love will, always defers to truth. Okay, you go out to dinner with a group of friends. You're all sitting in a restaurant, and you have like a big glob of mustard on the side of your face, and no one says anything to you, you might not be sitting with really good friends, right? (laughs) It's the really good friend that says, okay, I gotta be the one to make it awkward. Like, dude, you got mustard all over your face. Okay, it's really uncomfortable. And what do you say? You say, oh, thank you, okay? And yes, it's uncomfortable, but they had the courage because they love you. They had the courage to speak truth to you. That is a good friend. That's, That's an obvious like 101 level. Let's ratchet up a bunch of notches. How about this one? Our world knows this is true. Friends don't let friends drive drunk. It takes a, it takes a good friend to say, look, man, you've, you've had too much to drink. There's no way I'm letting you get behind a wheel. It's a good friend. It takes courage. It takes love because that person might get mad. They might be offended. They might be embarrassed. They might, they might end the friendship. They might say, I'm never going out with you again. They might end the friendship, but someone, is it loving to say, oh, okay, all right, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, go ahead. Is that loving? Of course not. We know that love always is going to defer to truth. It's going to say, no, I don't care if you're never my friend again. I love you too much to not speak truth to you in this moment. Love always defers to truth because it's not loving to water down the truth. It just destroys the person we love. Loving well, Love always defers to truth, but here's what truth does in the marriage. Truth will never go anywhere without love. Sometimes truth, it's like to, to communicate truth, we think, well, I'm just going to say it like it is. And it's brazen, and it's arrogant, and it's, it's pointed, and it's, it's rude, and it's flat. And it's like, well, I'm just speaking the truth. I'm sorry if you don't like it. And we don't bring any love into it. Will that truth go anywhere? No, of course, truth always brings love with it. I don't know which is worse. It might actually be worth to speak, speak the truth without love. If you speak, if you have love and no truth, maybe someone will come along that loves this person more than you do and will be willing to risk and speak the truth maybe down the road. It's a risk you're taking. But speaking the truth without love, you might permanently turn someone away to that truth and they'll never hear it from anyone again. Love without truth, devastating. Truth without love, devastating. They're supposed to go hand in hand. Love and truth, they work together. Love always defers to truth. That's being loving. But truth never goes anywhere without love. So how does this work in our, in our relationships? What this means in our relationships is we're going to push through some obstacles and some barriers to show love and truth. There may be a moment where we lovingly speak a truth that our culture says, oh, you're not supposed to speak truths like that. But we push through that barrier and we lovingly speak the truth. There may be social and religious barriers where it says, well, this person, well, they're so different religiously or in their beliefs or in their lifestyle, they're so different that someone like me wouldn't associate with someone like that. Well, you can't really be a follower of Jesus and maintain that, that kind of attitude as according to this passage. And this wasn't the only time Jesus did something like this. This is the one who ate with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus broke through those barriers. He said, I want to show you love. I want to love on you. And so this, this attitude of Jesus of showing love will be pushing through barriers unexpectedly to welcome someone in and be hospitable to someone. It's welcoming them into your home. It's building friendships with them. It's taking them out to lunch. It's, it's getting families together. It's pushing through those barriers to show love. Yeah, but what if someone misunderstands my association with them? Well, the, the world may misunderstand, but you know the other group that might misunderstand? It's, it's like that over-pious, strict rabbi that would never even go through Samaria. They would just go the other side of the Jordan and pass by them all together. But that's not the way of Jesus. He pushes through that. What does that mean, not just for our relationships, what does that mean for our church? It means that just in the spirit of Jesus, we are going to always be loving and always speak the truth. We're going to always be loving and welcoming any person in so that we can lovingly show them their Messiah the one who satisfies the thirst of their soul. I want to just close with a, with a woman at the well moment, type moment that I had several years back. I was on an uh, airplane flying into Fort Lauderdale, flying home, and there was a, a guy sitting next to me. He was really sharp, professional, well-spoken, and we, I start talking to him and I ask him, you know, hey, what do you do? And he tells me he's an executive at a company up in Ohio, and we start talking, asking about that, and, and I said, well, what brings you down to Fort Lauderdale? Are you you coming down on business? And he says, no, I'm, I'm on vacation. I said, oh, okay, well, what are you going to do while, while you're down here? And um, he paused for a beat and he says, well, I'm, I'm meeting my boyfriend down here. And he paused and I, I could tell that he was waiting to see my reaction because a thousand different uh, influxes in my voice and a thousand different ways like my body language could be or words I could say could communicate a whole lot to him. So I said, oh, okay, well, that's great. I hope you guys have a great, great time while, while you're down here. What are some of the things you're going to do? And we talk about it for a little bit longer, and then the, the conversation dies down for a second. And then he looks at me and says, so what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a pastor. And I paused for a minute because a thousand different ways he could <laughs> respond or react to what I just said could communicate a whole lot. And I tell him a bit, he says, and he says this, he says, well, tell me what's your church like? And that was his question, but there was so much more to that question. That was, a, um, th- that was moving to a theological, hey, are we going to have a slugfest theologically here or not? And so I said, okay, we could, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, we could talk about these these uh, different perspectives theologically and, or we, I could move it right to the Messiah. And, I said, okay, and so I said, well, let me tell you about our church. We're a church of people. None of us, all of us know we are we're imperfect. We all have sins in our lives. We all have things we've messed up but we rally around one central truth that somehow God loves us And he loves us right where we're at, just where we're at. And Jesus died for us and rose again from the dead. He is our Savior, our Messiah. And we rally around that one person. He's the only one that's perfect. And really, that's the most important thing that we celebrate at our church. And he listens and he pauses for a second. And then the real question hit the table. I said, man, well, while you're down here, if you're here over a weekend, you should come. You should come visit. And he said this well, if I came with my boyfriend, would the walls like fall in on your church like if we showed up? I said, man, absolutely not. You are more than welcome to come. We would love to have you guys come and attend our church. Now, what's happening in that moment? We're going to show love as a church and open these doors as imperfect people to anyone who wants to come in. Why? Because we are going to then lovingly tell them the truth. And we're going to lovingly point them to the truth. We're going to tell them what this says, what God says. We're not going to adjust it. We're not going to water it down. We're going to lovingly say this is the truth. Why? Because their souls are thirsty. Because Jesus looks down and says, That's someone I love, that's my child. And this is someone who's going to wells over and over and over again that's not satisfying their thirst. And he looks at us and says, you know what that's like, don't you? Because one day you were going to a well and you met the one who's the spring of living water and you left your jars behind. You have jars too, don't you? And he says in the same way, just bring the Messiah love, push through barriers, push through obstacles. Anyone is welcome in this room to lovingly hear the truth first and foremost, about the one who loves their soul and wants to satisfy their soul. May we be a people who are radically following in the footsteps, dangerously following in the footsteps of Jesus with uncommon love and firmly standing on truth and never seeing those things as poles but always married together. Maybe you're here and you say, you know, I'm the woman at the well. And if that's where you're feeling, you're very sensitively reading this text because that's really all of us at some point in our life. We're that person who just so desperately needs the Messiah. But you say, look, I, you don't understand. My, my past, my life, it is so messed up and I... I just don't know that I that Jesus would accept me like that. Can you hear this passage speaking to you? It's Jesus, your Savior, the Messiah. He's saying, "I am coming to you. I love you. I love your soul." He says, "You're my child. Let me satisfy that thirst that's constantly in your life." And you can today just simply say, "Okay, I accept you. You are the Messiah." You're ultimately what my soul is looking for. And I want to follow after you. I want to give you a moment, if that's you and you want to receive Jesus as your Savior, I want to give you a moment to do that right now. Would you all bow your heads and close your eyes? Just take this moment right here, a quiet moment between you and God. And if that's you, I want you to just, right there in your heart, I want you just to say this. You don't have to say any words out loud, but make my words your words and just simply pray this to God and begin this relationship. Say, Jesus in your heart say, Jesus, thank you for saving me. For overcoming all the obstacles so that you could help me find my Savior. Thank you for loving me that much. I want to make you my Savior and Lord. I want to follow after you. Today's the day. In Jesus' name.